Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries, of curiosities, of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So we were sitting around last night uh, trying to think of where we would like to do a live show next. And we've had a lot of suggestions over the last few months, but probably Texas has come up more than uh, than any, any other. So we're going to be in uh, Washington, D.C. in January. In February, we'll be in Connecticut. And so March just seemed like the next logical uh, time to do a show. And Texas keeps coming up. And we thought Dallas might be a good location because it's, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm wrong because Texas is freaking huge. Texas is big. But it seems like it's uh, fairly centrally located to major metropolitan areas outside of Dallas-Fort Worth. And we've had a lot of people from Dallas say, come to Dallas. Yeah. Also, it's not that far from Oklahoma. And you, you know. just really love the musical Oklahoma or... Cows and pigs and chicks, they all scurry when I take you out in my Surrey, when I take you out. It's really nice. So anyway, um, you posted something on Facebook about it last night. I just posted, hey, if you've got any ideas for venues that you think would be a good fit, um, then let us know. I mean, I I didn't just post that. I also, I made an image of you and I in (laughs) Dallas uh, with a rabbit. Yeah. And um, Jack Rabbit. It seemed to work out really nicely. If you think that Dallas is a good idea, you're in that area, contact one of your local venues and have them get a hold of us. Curator at theboxofoddities.com. It's just that easy. That's how shows get booked. Yeah. Just, you know, they, they, they need to know yep. that people want the shows to come and then the shows come. That's how it works. It's just that easy. Did I already say it's just that easy? You did. Uh, yeah. Okay. Jackrabbit. So you go first. Yep. What do you got? Okay, so you remember that uh, question I asked you this morning about the hidden treasure, uh, the West. Oh, the yeah, uh, Westy Forest Fen. Yes, he's the guy that uh, allegedly had collected all this gold over the years and hid it somewhere in the mountains so people can go find it after he's dead. 
It's a fun story, and I found another fun story, and I was just verifying that it wasn't the same fun story because sometimes I get confused, and there's a lot of interesting stuff out there. So anyway, here we go. Treasure hunt. Yay! Uh, According to the story, which was set out in an 1885 pamphlet, an American man by the name of Thomas J. Beale came across a treasure consisting of gold, silver, and jewels in a mine Uh, to the north of Santa Fe. Along with his crew, he dragged the treasure back to his home state of Virginia and hid it underground, a.k.a. burying his treasure. In 1821, Beale headed out west again in search for more treasure uh, because I find stories of people who find treasure, some treasure's not enough treasure and they need more treasure. Well, that's the whole basis for gambling casinos. You know, it's like, okay, I won big. I'm not just going to pocket my money. I'm going to spend it more so I can win more. (laughs) But uh, he did want to leave an insurance policy of sorts. So he went to his friend, Robert Morris, who owned a hotel in Lynchburg, Virginia, called the Washington Hotel. And he left a package with him. Okay. The package was a locked iron box. And Beale said, don't open this box unless I or any of my dudes don't come back from our westerly journey within 10 years. A little while later, uh, there was a letter sent to the Washington Hotel from Beale, and it said, hey, uh, we're going to send you a key to that box uh, shortly. However, that key never arrived, and it wasn't until 1845 that Morris opened the box. So how many years had elapsed? 24. 24 fast years. Fast math. Okay. Inside the box, he found a few letters from Beale and several pages of a cipher text. Ooh, I love a cipher text. I know. Uh, the cipher text was separated into papers, one, two, and three. So the codes. The codes are basic substitution ciphers. So each number represents a letter of the alphabet, which can be found by numbering the words in a key text. And uh, one of the articles that I read was in Mental Floss, and they used this example. If the key text is Mary Roach's book, Stiff, each word in the book would have a number assigned to it. And so the 87th word starts with the letter H, and the 118th word starts with the letter I. So 87, 118 would spell high. So Morris immediately began trying to decipher these texts. But after decades of attempts, he he did not have any luck. And he was getting ready to kick it. So he was like, here, my friend, I'm going to give you these ciphers and uh, you can try to work it. And then he died. The issue here is nobody knows what the key text is. That's right. All right. And there are three key texts because there are three papers, one, two, and three. Okay, and the key so texts are different for each one. Okay, all right. How do they know this that that it's different for each one if they haven't deciphered any of them? I didn't say they hadn't deciphered any of them. <gasps> yeah. Talk to me, girl. Yeah. <laughs> so in the late 19th century, uh, the friend who Morris gave the stuff to 
Allegedly. Allegedly. He successfully deciphered the second ciphertext using a version of the United States Declaration of Independence. Okay. All right. Right? How yeah. national treasury is that shit? I was just going to say, I would expect, uh, what's Nick his Cage name? Nick Cage is going to pop his ass up and be like, woohoo, we're on an adventure. Is that what you were going to say? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Um, now I want to watch National Treasure again. Okay. You want to watch that? Yes. I love that Do movie. you want to watch it today? Yes. Okay. You want to watch it on the big screen? No, I told you I want to clean that room first. Okay. I want to like vacuum and we get have, the... <laughs> we have a, uh, a projector in it, like a big semi-curved wall-mounted screen, but it's in the guest bedroom. Yeah, which and... has been lived in for... Uh, Ever. Seven out of the eight years we've lived in this that's, house. That's true. <laughs> we and made a mistake. It needs to be disinfected. Um, I get that. But I miss my big screen. I know. Well, once we get the carpet shampooer in there right. and we well, let's just hurry up and finish. the whole thing out. Let's finish this so I can go get a carpet shampooer. Okay. So you want to stop talking about how we're going to yep. clean the downstairs yep. bedroom and get back, and to, get back to the store. Yep. Okay. So the uh, deciphered text gave a description of the buried treasure. It reads as follows. The first deposit, <laughs> deposit <laughs> consists of 1014 pounds of gold and 3812 pounds of silver, deposited November 1819. The second was made December 1821 and consisted of 1907 pounds of gold and 1288 of silver, also jewels obtained in St. Louis in exchange for silver to save transportation and valued at $13,000. Well, that's smart. Trading silver for jewels for travel purposes. Yeah, it just makes good sense. Right. It's like carry-on luggage. Right. If I ever have an opportunity to trade heavy things for, like, light things. That's what you often do. Yep. Okay. I've got some bits of the sun. Would you trade for your saffron? <laughs> I don't know. All right. So the other two ciphers still not deciphered. Oh, hey. What year did he decipher that one text? It was the early 19th century. I'm sorry, the late 19th century. That's all I've got for you. All right. James B. Ward, who is allegedly a friend of a friend of Morris, the hotel guy, uh, released his discovery to the public in 1885 in a pamphlet entitled The Beale Papers. This is the first time that the story enters a historical record. And as you can imagine, the the pamphlet sold very well because mm. people are like, treasure, I'm in, let's do this. And there aren't a lot of East Coast treasures. Most treasures are out West. That's interesting. Yeah. You would think that East Coast being settled first, there would be more opportunity to hide treasure than going yeah. out West. And although, you know, you had the gold rush, That's you had right. the silver mines. Yep. Okay. Historically, treasuring happens westerly. Uh, but this is very exciting because it's in Virginia. It's accessible to a lot of us East Coast people, and it's exciting. Dang it. You need to say dang it like an old grizzled prospector, though. Dang it. There. Well, like that's, that? That's close. Yeah, okay. How add, do you... Add a little <laughs> in there. there. <laughs> dang it. Well, well now you're the crack fox That sounds now. like the crack fox. <laughs> that's what you just did. <laughs> Peachette. All right, the Beale Papers did real well. And so the legend of the Beale treasure grew. 
Just uh, wanted to give a heads up. I found uh, most of the information about the Beale treasure in an article on ancientorigins.com, curiosity.com, mentalfloss.com, and, of course, Wikipedia. Now, Mental Floss noted how many have tried to find this treasure. It is... uh, well known, and I had not heard of the Beale cipher, so I was kind of surprised at how greatly searched for this treasure has been. So there was a Chicago refrigeration contractor who was certain that he'd ciphered or deciphered the cipher, and he contracted local officials to dig up a patch of cemetery uh, only to find clothes hangers and horseshoes. <laughs> there was a Texas d- guy who drove to Virginia with his wife and kids simply to borrow a local road map because he thought that he'd figured out some sort of uh, map-to-map I see. code. Right, right. Uh, turns out, no. Um there's a Massachusetts guy who had a dream that he f- discovered where the treasure was, got up out of bed and drove directly to Virginia uh, to no luck. There is a guy that is following his dream. I love it. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. Um, there were a couple of dudes who, like, kidnapped a psychic to tell them <laughs> where the treasure was. That was also not successful. Kids. Don't kidnap psychics. Right. And by the way, if a psychic gets kidnapped, they're not a very good psychic because they would have known the kidnappers were coming. Well, psychics don't necessarily know of everything that's happening in the future. They can't. They just focus on one thing, like the things that they can get people to give them money for. Gee, you, you seem to know an awful lot about psychics for somebody who poo-poos psychics. Well, if you'd listen to what I said rather than just trying to to get snarky with me, then you'd see I was poo-pooing a psychic. Gee, you get awful snarky with me when I get snarky with you. You know what? I Willie wants us to stop this. Okay. Okay. So, Beale treasure hunters are overwhelmingly male, as treasure hunters tend to be. Why is that, I wonder? I don't know. It's an interesting statistic. What makes men fit into the psychographic of Treasure Hunter more than women. Yeah, I have questions. Yeah. But there was a story about a Pennsylvania woman who cashed in her disability check to uh, test her theory that the treasure was buried in an unmarked plot of a church graveyard. Uh, But she ended up unearthing a coffin handle and some human bones and was arrested and advised (laughs) never to come back to Virginia. Yeah, we don't need your type here. (laughs) So (laughs) I suppose that's a, a great way to go about it, though. Like if you're grave robbing, just be like, I'm sorry, I was looking for a treasure. Not this treasure, no. a different treasure. You don't know about it. So interesting things about this whole treasure hunt, and we've talked about this before, is the cipher and the pamphlets come into public knowledge all from one source. Well, there you go. Now, my issue with the one source has come up over and over and over again, and Uh, This is another great example of why when you just have the one source and it's just repeated from that one source over and over again, things can get a little hinky. It's like the telephone game. It is like the telephone game. Also, it's like a hoax. What? I'm just saying. Is it a hoax? Maybe. Well, it's still highly debated. Look, the moon landing maybe was a hoax. I'm saying what I'm telling you is that all of the details about the Beale treasure... 
both the pamphlet that wrote about these ciphers and the ciphers, they all come from one place. Uh, this guy who, who allegedly deciphered it mm-hmm. uh, then sold the pamphlet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. We talked about uh, this with Buck's Curse and Bucksport, that the story of the, the curse of his tomb, um, that came from one source. We talked about this with the Bell Witch and how the story of the Bell Witch came from one source. We talked about this with Emily Sanger, the doppelganger chick. That all one came source. from yeah. one source. Mm-hmm. You know, so that, that's when I really think... Okay, so Beale allegedly had like 30 dudes working with him, and yet none of those other people reported that there was this hidden treasure. Well, they were out west. He might have killed and ate them. That was a popular thing to do back then. Sure. Anyway, some of the other hinky things about this is that the codes and the documents um, contain some words that don't exactly make sense for the time that they were allegedly written. Things like uh, stampeding and uh, the word improvised, they had entered the lexicon by the time that the pamphlet was released, Mm. but at the time that the papers were allegedly written weren't really in use that much. Interesting. And there was a linguist in 1982 named Dr. Jean Pival uh, who analyzed the writing of the documents. And he said that the the guy who wrote the pamphlet, James Ward, he had some very similar writing styles as Beale, hmm. um, using uh, reflective reflexive pronouns incorrectly, uh, emulating certain rhythms of the King James Bible, and frequently using negative passive phrases such as never be told and never to be realized. It's just uh, kind of interesting is all. Damn it. So there have been, uh, as I said, lots of people uh, debating it. Uh, Supercomputers in the late 1960s, which now are (laughs) just... How super could they have been? <laughs> right. Um, they found that the one cipher that has been deciphered is not exactly English once it's deciphered. It makes sense. You can figure it out. But it's not really well done. And that could just be like, oh, someone made a mistake here or there. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we don't have the right version of the Declaration of Independence. You know. But the other two ciphers don't really display the normal patterns that you would see in English language. So even if we don't have it deciphered, you can still tell that there are certain patterns that it doesn't meet. So it's possible that just paper two out of paper one, two, and three is a is a real cipher, but the other two may just be gibberish. Hmm. So there's a lot of possibilities. There here. are a lot of possibilities. But that doesn't stop people from looking. It has been uh, widely sought after and widely distributed, and people um, are still on the hunt. And this has been a problem for uh, the people who own the land <laughs> where some think that the treasure is hidden. There was an article in the 70s in, the I think, the Washington Post that talked about how the owners of that land frequently fired warning shots at people who were found to be on their land. Uh, Just traipsing across the pasture with a shovel. Yeah. Well, that's exactly the problem was that because people were digging holes in their pasture, 
literally, their cows were breaking their legs. Oh, my God. Falling into these yeah. holes. And you can't just do that. Um, but according to one source that I was reading, uh, the Virginia state law is very awkwardly written. So it's very finders keepers-y. Ooh. So even if you found the property on someone else's property, you could say, well, I found it. It's mine. Yeah, but couldn't the property owner um, sue them for trespassing? Sure. For the amount found? Sure. Uh, well, probably. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I was doing some reading about uh, what entails how finders keepers actually works. And uh, <laughs> so there is a legal distinction uh, that comes uh, into play. And it depends on whether the property was abandoned, lost, or mislaid. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. And uh, that goes into, uh, you know, a whole different thing. Like each has their own definition and uh, what you can do with property depends on whether it was abandoned, lost, or mislaid. Um, and from state to state, the rules change as well. I'll bet, though, that where that is a law, it's entirely different if you find it on government property. Ah, interesting. That's exactly right. So if you dig up the front yard of a post office and find a treasure... It's not finders keepers. <laughs> well, in most cases of public property, it has to go to the police and the police put out a bulletin. You know, we found this thing. Is it mm -hmm. yours? Mm -hmm. blah, blah, and after a certain period of time, it will then be determined by a court whether or not it can belong to the person who found it or if it belongs to the state. Interesting. Interesting indeed. Anyway, that's what I have for you. It's the Beale Ciphers. And now, that thing in the middle. ICD-10 codes, International Classification of Diseases code set, which the U.S. government mandated medical practices must switch to in October of 2016. Now, this is just so we have consistent terms for yes. specific injuries. Uh, we have done this before. But there are so many of them, it's we're gonna glorious. we're gonna do it again. These are some of the strangest ICD-10 codes that we've run across. And when we did this last time, we actually heard from a couple of people who work in the insurance industry and said that this is absolutely the case. They do this all the time, and it it's really strange. It's wonderful. Here we go. Number five, Y93.D1, injured while knitting and crocheting. How does that happen? I don't know. Number four, R15.2, fecal urgency. <laughs> okay. I don't, I don't know. Okay, okay. Number three, V91.07, burn due to water skis on fire. <laughs> okay. I would think in that case there had to have been a, an accelerant involved. Number two, V91.07. 35XA, hit or struck by a falling canoe or kayak. And number one, W59.21, struck by turtle. That is a very slow motion injury. Uh... The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, 
and they live about 3,000 miles away. And my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house, yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. 
So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, freaks, this holiday season, we've teamed up with Himalaya to give back to our community. If you sign up for the Box of Oddities Premium on Himalaya Plus from now through December 6th, Himalaya will give all proceeds made during that time to a great cause called End the Backlog, a program aimed at resolving the mountain of untested rape kits that have been overlooked. And when you subscribe to the Premium channel, uh, leave us a voice note in our back channel community. And we may make a special holiday episode addressing any questions or comments that are left there. You might even hear your message on the episode. The best part is if you sign up now, you'll get your first month of premium with ad-free episodes, early access episodes, exclusive content, and a members-only jacket. No, just kidding. It's a members-only community. Absolutely free. I want a members-only jacket. I know. Download the Himalaya app, look up the Box of Oddities, enter the promo code GIVEBACK at checkout. If you want to contribute even more to end the backlog, you can check our episode notes for a list of other creators who are participating in this awesome campaign. Remember, all proceeds will go toward end the backlog. So hurry, let's all give a little back this Thanksgiving. Life may be like a box of chocolates, but this is the box of oddities. We got this email uh, actually just yesterday. And it's pretty long, so I'm just going to give you the gist of it. Jude writes in and says that uh, she really enjoys the podcast. And she uh, was listening at work and Googling old friends' names on the Interwebble machine. Okay. And she uh, Googled the name of an old friend she'd lost touch with, Lonnie, and his obituary popped up. She thought, well, that can't be him, but it was. It turns out that the right after the last time that she saw Lonnie in 2001, he had um, lost control of a vehicle and was ejected from the vehicle and, and unfortunately died. So after she found out about this, she decided that she needed to drive from work to where this had happened. And she was listening to the box of oddities along the way because she needed to hear something a little bit uplifting. Sure. Now, she, when she knew Lonnie, he worked at a Denny's. He was a cook. She used to go in and order a grilled cheese sandwich. And he said to her all the time when he was working, uh, order the better than sex grilled cheese sandwich. And he would make it especially for her. Mm. So she went to the Denny's and she ordered that uh, better than sex grilled cheese sandwich <laughs> just for fun. The server, she said, didn't quite know what to make of my order, but I ended up with a tasty sandwich. Then she gets back in the car and turns on the box of oddities. And she said, Kat says grilled cheese sandwich. I think Lonnie was sending me a message that he's okay. Thank you for the part you played in getting me his message. Oh, that's really June. nice. Yeah, that's a nice thought. Today, I'm going to talk about chastity belts. Oh, oh. <laughs> the history of chastity belts. Uh, Wikipedia says that according to the modern myths, the chastity belt was used as a anti-temptation device during the Crusades. You know, the knights would leave on their holy crusade and they didn't want their ladies fooling around. So they would lock them up in chastity belts to preserve their faithfulness because women can't be trusted. Yeah, right. Yes. Um, <laughs> and so that's really where a lot of people think that uh, chastity belts 
came from was the uh, the medieval crusades period. And the way you're setting this up is leading me to believe that we are all wrong. What would make you think that? My psychic powers. Research into the history of uh, chastity belts suggests that they were not used until at least the 16th century. Oh. And they were available in uh, different forms and sold for different reasons or manufactured for different reasons from not just chastity, but as a anti-masturbation medical device. Oh, my. So the Renaissance comes along and they've heard about these chastity belts from the from the Middle Ages. And they think it's hilarious. They think... Boy, what a bunch of nimrods <laughs> back in those days. Sure. Because they couldn't trust each other to the point where they would have to lock the other person's genitals up. Right. Now, again, they did have chastity belts during the Renaissance period, but they were more of an anti-rape, anti-masturbation device. Got it. Now, the ones in the Renaissance were, were said to have padded linings. To prevent, you know, the metal from chafing. Well, thank goodness. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, if you wore one of these devices for a long period of time, it would cause all kinds of infection, abrasive wounds. It could cause sepsis and even death. The first mention of something that was uh, interpreted as a chastity belt was written by Conrad Kaiser in his Bellafortis, and it describes... Many things, but mostly military technology of the era. The book included drawings that accompanied a Latin text, a drawing of a chastity belt that was accompanied by a, the Latin text, Est Florentinarum hoc prasili diminarum ferum e dorum ab antia sic restauratum. Oh, wow. Yeah, right. Which means these iron breeches of Florentine women are closed in the front. Wow. That's what that means in, in whatever that language was that I butchered. It's supposed to be Latin. Who I'm, knows what it ended up being? I'm going to make myself a T-shirt that just says closed in the front that <laughs> I will wear to bed on <laughs> nights when I am closed in the front. <laughs> but party in the back. <laughs> what? Um, no. In 1889, a leather and iron belt was found by uh, a guy who was a German collector of antiques. In Linz, Austria, in a grave, he found a skeleton of a young woman who was reportedly buried wearing a chastity belt. That's the ultimate insult, really, don't you think? Can't even be trusted in death. That's bad. Or maybe she was so desirable that the people around her couldn't be trusted after she was dead. Ooh, that's a horrifyingly interesting thought. Sorry about my brain. However, the belt in most of this guy's collection has been lost, and they can't document that that actually happened. There are two chastity belts that are on display at the Musée de Cluny in Paris. The first, it's uh, a simple velvet-covered hoop with an, a plate of iron. The other is a, is a hinged pair of plates held around the waist by metal straps, and it had figures of Adam and Eve on it. Now, when you're wearing a chastity belt, is that, is there, I guess, I mean, I don't really know that much about them. So would there be, how do you pee? Okay, like, we're getting it, to that. Okay. But I need to say this first. It appears that uh, the legend, most of the legend behind the chastity belt is not true. Okay. According to Ranker, one of the favorite pastimes of the people in the Renaissance was laughing about the ignorance of the medieval period. 
Historian Sarah Bond says, quote, the truth about chastity belts is that they are largely a fiction constructed in the Renaissance and early modern periods in order to conjure a more barbaric Middle Age that had come previously. Getting back to Conrad Kaiser's 1405 book, Bellafortis, according to Ranker, along with the uh, military devices in the chastity belt, Kaiser included fart jokes mm -hmm. and an imaginary fictional elevator and invisibility devices. Nice. So in the 1400s, chastity belts weren't real. They were just jokes. Got it. And so the ones that you see in museums are jokes, like... I don't, like like gag Christmas party gifts. Weren't these guys idiots? Ha ha ha. Exactly. Now, uh, when I think of uh, chastity belts, immediately I think of uh, Robin Hood men in tights. So that's that's yeah. now something I want to watch. Okay. Can we watch Robin Hood men in tights? Right after National Treasure. Awesome. But really, designing a practical chastity belt was a physical impossibility. A metal belt intended to block intercourse but allow urination, defecation, and menstruation. Seems to me that there's a high potential for major health risks there. Sure. The Semmelweis Museum points out a metal chastity belt would doubtlessly cause deep and gradually more infected wounds within a few days, vaginal or anal infections, serious sepsis, and, and as we mentioned before, even death. Right. Well, they say, you know, wear cotton underwear, you know. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, yeah. Like even polyester is not a great idea. Right. I can't imagine what iron is like <laughs> on your cooter. Yeah. It's not very absorbent, I, I wouldn't imagine. Now, if you look at Renaissance paintings or etchings of chastity belts, and yes, there are some, you see pretty much the same thing. It's a jealous husband locking his wife into a sturdy metal chastity belt. Uh, she's topless, reclining on the bed, waiting for her husband to leave while lovers hover in the shadows, holding a copy of the key. Over and over and over again, you see this. Sure. And back in those days, there were... Um, Oftentimes, like, teenage girls married older men, like, in their 30s. Gross. And the anxious older men were targets of derision, perpetuating the idea that they were sexually impotent. Oh. And, and unable to control their wives, and so they needed chastity belts. So they were being made fun of. Right. Now, by the 15th century, a book on witchcraft declared, women's carnal lust was insatiable. Quote, for the sake of fulfilling their lusts, they consort with even the devil. Can we talk for just a moment about how throughout history, women, uh, it is the punchline over and over again that women never want to have sex and also that women are whores. Can we <laughs> can we just acknowledge that there's nothing that a woman can do ever that meets like societal needs? It's gross. Shut up, woman. <laughs> The entire joke of uh, the chastity belt rested on the idea that it was impossible for women to be faithful. Sure. So what about the uh, chastity belts that are in the museums that I mentioned earlier? Uh, they date, the ones that say that uh, they were from the Middle Ages actually came from the middle of the 19th century. Oh. Semmelweis Museum's exhibit on chastity belts says, quote, the chastity belts dated to the Middle Ages appear from the appear to be from the middle of the 19th century in the most significant and then also in the minor museums in Europe. In other words, these were unauthorized reproductions. But thinking about the design, so, you know, 
it really fails to overcome some basic engineering issues. For sure. Uh, the front, you know, if the ones that were made of iron, they looked like an armored bikini. Yep. Uh, they locked around the waist. On the front, there was often a screen or an opening to allow for urination. Oftentimes, the opening looked like a bear trap. So that was supposed to deter any guys right. from saying, yeah, let me see if I can work around this. And then there's one I saw. The hole that's cut in the back uh, for excrement was star-shaped. Oh, like a rusty sheriff's badge. Right. And all I can think of was like a really disgusting Play-Doh fun factory. (laughs) 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 Very impractical. Victorians were the first to mass-produce chastity belts, but they marketed them as anti-rape devices. And also pioneered the devices intending to keep one from self-pleasuring because you don't want to go blind right. or, or become impotent or get epilepsy, which is what they thought masturbation would cause. Chronic fatigue, mental derangement, and even premature death. Wow. Wikipedia says from the 18th century until the 1930s, masturbation was widely regarded as harmful. In Western medicine, numerous mentions can be made uh, were made in uh, medical journals of the time, promoting the use of a chastity-like device to prevent masturbation in uh, female children and adolescents as well as women. Not so much men, but mostly women. Sure. I'm making you angry again, aren't I? No, it's fine. The U.S. Patent Office, up until the 1930s, received patent applications for anti-masturbation devices. I don't know who needs to hear this, but guys, it's healthy. (laughs) Okay? Now today, chastity belts are still around, of course, but they're used more in BDSM play, in consensual relationships. Sure. There are subcultures that are dedicated to the usage of that. And despite the historical association of chastity belts with women, worldwide purchasing demand for male chastity belts is far higher today than female chastity devices. Consequently, the male chastity device market offers more options and diversity. Oh, well, that's nice. Compared to what is available for female chastity devices. The most popular chastity device for men nowadays, by the way, is the cock and ball trap. I don't know what that means. I'll show you a picture later. Okay. And now, chastity belts in the news. In 1981, while California State Senator John G. Schmitz was leading hearings on outlawing abortion, Gloria Allred presented him with a chastity belt. Schmitz retaliated in a press release calling her a, quote, slick butch lawyeress. She sued him for libel and eventually secured a settlement of two, of $20,000 and an apology. Nice. In 1998, racial riots against the ethnic Chinese prompted the production and sale of anti-rape corsets. These were Florentine-type belts of imitation leather covered with plastic fashioned with a combination lock. These belts had a solid crotch strap without holes. They were intended just for brief outings. Kind of like the uh, anti-rape condoms that were kind of a thing. I, f- I feel like it was some sort of like Olympic event or something. In the, the streets of the city outside the Olympic events, they were concerned that uh, rape levels were going to rise significantly because of the increased traffic into the city. So they were 
marketing these like female anti-rape almost reverse condoms that you could oh. insert that had teeth it's kind of like the uh the backup tire grates yes. in parking garages just like that yeah except like the females couldn't take them out they had to be oh. taken out by a doctor it was you know i there, it was awful. real problematic yeah though i get the point i mean i get the desire February 6, 2004, USA Today reported that uh, at an Athens airport in Greece, a woman's steel chastity belt triggered the security alarm at the metal detector. As it will. The woman explained that her husband had forced her to wear the device to prevent her from extramarital affairs while she was on vacation in Greece. She was allowed to continue her flight to London on the on the pilot's authority. The incident was said to have happened just before Christmas. I hope that it was actually some sort of kink thing and not just the most untrusting relationship that I've ever heard of. Sounds like a kink thing. Fingers crossed. And and to save face, she said, my husband made me do it. Right. That's what I would do if I got caught with a cock and ball trap on at the airport. No, you would not. You'd be like, we use this for sex stuff. I'm into it. <laughs> In 2007, the Asian Human Rights Commission reported that, a, that women were being forced to wear chastity belts in the Indian state of Rajasthan. In 2008, in Indonesia, women were required to wear belts with a lock and key during working hours if they were masseuses. Oh, okay. Okay. That was to prevent prostitution. Sure. Or at least some prostitution. I was actually uh, looking at job uh, openings the other day, and there was a listing for a masseuse, but in the description, it talked about how this was in no way therapeutic massage, so you did not need a license in order to do this, <laughs> and mm. that the uh, business would provide the beds. Now, didn't it, it did not say massage tables. Mm. It said beds. Okay, then. And I was like, hmm, interesting. And finally, this comes from History Extra. In the 1930s, Paris baker Henri Littore had a major marital problem. His wife was desperate to be faithful, but she couldn't help herself. She had three affairs in three months before he decided that something had to be done. So he, <gasps> he visited a museum and came out with sketches of medieval chastity belts. And he baked a chastity belt? You no. said he was a baker. Oh. Oh, my oh, gosh. Oh, like I, edible panties. I want a bread chastity belt. <laughs> <laughs> Focaccia, am I right? <laughs> so he gave these uh, sketches to a man who made false arms and legs for veterans Asking him to kind of throw something to the, uh, together to secure means of, of keeping his wife from consummating her infidelities. She was in agreement with this. She said, I'm horny. I can't help myself. And so this was kind of a consensual thing. He brought his wife to the final fitting. She pronounced herself satisfied with the comfort of the velvet-covered steel contraption and joked with her husband that he mustn't lose the key. Sometime later, however... One of her former lovers came to visit. One thing led to another, and he saw that the apparatus uh, she was wearing was preventing him from getting it on. So he went straight to the police and sued the husband in court on January 21st, 1934 on charges of cruelty. Although <laughs> Cruelty to who? <laughs> <laughs> although um, his wife testified that she found it impossible to be faithful, the judge gave the baker a three-month suspended sentence 
and a 50-franc fine. Wow, that's a lot less fun than him baking a chastity belt. I wonder if he'd bake it out of pumpernickel. Know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? So anyway, that's what I have for you. <laughs> I loved it. Chastity belts. That was great. Oh, we wanted to mention briefly that we are going to take a little bit of a break. We're going on hiatus, production hiatus, but just the week of Christmas. Yes. We are tired. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. You just got right to it. Cool, well, cool, cool. Well, I, I think that we are, we've, by that time, we'll have done close to 190 shows in a row. Mm. And we thought, we're going to just take Christmas week and uh, take a little bit of a breather and then be right back at it again. Two shows a week until we die. <laughs> <laughs> but if we don't take this break, we will just die. Yes, that's probably true. So just be aware that that's happening. And uh, then we're going to be getting ready to hit up our live shows, which we're very excited about. Washington, D.C., the 29th of January, Bridgeport, Connecticut, at the um, historic Bijou Theater on February 29th, Leap Day. And like we mentioned at the beginning of the show, we thought uh, Dallas, Texas would be a great place to go in March. So we're going to see if uh, we can get a booking there. We'll let you know. March 29th is on a Sunday. We should try to time it so that we can fly to Nashville and see our friend Jim Harold do his first live show at Zany's. Yes. Okay. So Jim Harold, Jim Harold's campfire going to be live at Zany's in Nashville on the 24th of March. Uh, we're going to be going to that. You should, too. We got our tickets. They went on sale last night, and uh, you can find that on the Zany's website. And we're excited for Jim. This is his first show. He's really excited about it. Let's pack the house for him. Yes, please. We always love hanging out with you, our freak friend, and we look forward to the very next time. Keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those I report to, to beseech you for assistance. The box of oddities is free. We ask but one thing of you to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, 
women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.